You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 105. Today, we're asking the question, how can organizations learn faster? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So today's a bit of a special episode. So Drew, do you want to sort of introduce what we'll be sort of covering today? Sure. So at at the time you're listening to this episode, this is probably a couple of weeks ago, but on Australia Day this year, Edgar Schein passed away at I believe the age of 98. And Shine is one of the giants of organizational psychology who's been quite an influence over a lot of, uh, particularly safety practitioners, but also safety academics over the past few years, uh, as his approach to organizational leadership has started to intersect with some of the resilience and safety to and safety differently motivated ideas. So yeah, we thought good opportunity to pick something that Shine has written. Uh, David suggested his classic book, Humble Inquiry, at which point I had to admit I haven't actually read all of Humble Inquiry. Uh, So we went, picked one of his papers instead, and we'll talk it through. Yeah, and I really like the paper that you went and, went and found, Drew, and that was your penalty or, or, or punishment. And we'll talk a bit about punishment in this episode, but that was your penalty for not having read um, the book that I'd read. You had to go and find a, a good paper. And, and, and Drew, before we introduce the paper, it, it, it might be, it might be nice to just go through a little bit of the, the career of, of Edgar Schein and, and some of his contributions, um, that he made. Okay, let's let's do that. And yeah, as, as I go through, you know, keep, keep keep in mind that this is a full career. A, lo- a lot of people who are early career academics, they look at work of giants like Shine, and they think, you know, how could I ever do anything like this? And they think they need to like set out to write a masterpiece straight off. And whenever you look at the career of someone like this, you realise just how contingent the opportunities are, and the paths, and the topics. Um, So, uh, Schein did his PhD at Harvard University and, as far as I can tell, actually spent the rest of his life in Boston um, at Harvard and then at uh, Sloan School of Management at MIT. Uh, But his PhD was actually on prisoners of war. Uh, He was studying American uh, both service people and civilians who were held in Chinese concentration camps during the Korean War. And he was looking at the effects of the Chinese attempted brainwashing. So he published lots of different papers about the experiences of these prisoners. And then moved from talking about people captured within concentration camps to people uh, experiencing coercive behaviour in large organisations. And this wasn't an accidental uh, shift. He very explicitly made the link. David, do you mind if I sort of go into a quote I found from one of his early working papers? Uh, So he says, from the point of view of the political prisoner, the dilemma is to resist the all-powerful and alien forces of his capture. From the point of view of the captor, however, the dilemma is how to root out and convert alien elements in his society. 
That is, after their takeover, the Chinese communists found themselves in the position of having to mould new political beliefs in a large segment of their society and to eliminate all forces which undermined any such effort. And they, later on he goes, if we maintain the perspective of the organisation or society, we see that the need to convert members to a new ideology and to root out resistance or sabotage is a problem which many organisations face, including, he says, industrial organisations. And he says, you particularly with respect to new members coming in, they need to be taught the organisational goals, values and preferred ways of dealing with problems. And so he goes on, he's made this like very explicit link from prisoner of war in a concentration camp being converted to the new ideology to person coming into an organisation also needs to be converted. And so he was concerned about questions like, you know, what's okay for an organisation to try to influence? You know, obviously it's okay to try to get people to follow organisational procedures, but how about other beliefs like around trade unions or how the market works or what a good company looks like? And so from asking those questions, Shine got more and more interested in organisational leadership and in particularly how managers are educated and developed. And a continuing strain through all of this was this idea that organisations demand subordination, they demand loyalty, they look for, uh, he called it ideological alignment. Uh, I think more positively people call it things like cultural fit. And he said that this directly stifles the personal growth of a leader. You're trying to get someone to fit in is the exact opposite to trying to get someone to grow as an individual and as a change maker. And so all of this eventually sort of led into uh, almost the foundation of the field of organisational psychology growing out of social psychology. And a lot of people credit him with sort of being the granddaddy of organisational culture. His sort of probably his best known book is just called Organisational Psychology. And it was eventually renamed Organisational Culture and Leadership. But in safety, I think he's probably best known for his much more recent work, uh, which is sort of a lot more uh, personal and a lot more his ideas, whereas the textbook was very much trying to capture an entire field. And so that's, that's his book, Your Humble Inquiry. Uh, I was actually talking this morning to Rosa Carrillo, who is a long, long time uh, mentee of Edgar Schein. And you know, the first adjective she picked to talk about him was humble. Uh, you know, this approach that he's espousing is something that he sought to do himself and sought to do that throughout his work. Just someone with a like just deep, deep personal curiosity, even though he's a management consultant, he's business development, you know, best-selling author. Actually, his commitment to academic rigor and to thinking about methods and the limitation of those methods, you know, as well as all of these big famous books and papers. He's published lots of uh, just talk about how he does his research and how he does his consulting. And he's deeply reflective about his sort of personal approach to these things. Yeah, that's a bit about Edgar Schein. But D David, obviously, uh, you've read Humble Inquiry. I think it's probably influenced some of your own thinking. Do you want to talk about? Yeah, look, I think Andy's work on organisational culture and leadership. And, and I think there has been a strong intersection into safety, not just in the more what we call the new view ideas, but also through safety culture over the last two decades. He spoke, he took a, quite an active interest in, in the safety field. He spoke at lots and lots of safety conferences and was a guest on lots and lots of safety podcasts. And, you know, you know, while he was in his eighties and early nineties, I mean, um, the humble inquiry book would have been published when he was, when he was mid eighties. So uh, it was interesting to then go back and read this paper that I'll introduce shortly from 1992 and see some of the early formation of the ideas, which were then published what became 20 years later in in that book. 
So, Dev, would you like to take us into the paper? Yeah, so Drew found this paper, and for regular listeners of the podcast, you'll know how excited we get by paper titles. So, Drew actually came to me and said, I found two papers. Let's do the first one because I like the title better. So, the title of this paper is, How Can Organizations Learn Faster? The Problem with Entering the Green Room. Now, that title will make a bit more sense by the time we get to the end, but a cool title nonetheless. So, this was actually a publication based on a script that he delivered as an invited address to the World Economic Forum in um, February the 6th, 1992 in Davos in, in Switzerland. So, like Drew mentioned, he was at the MIT Sloan School of Management. And he starts this paper about talking about the importance or the, the necessity for academics and, and organizational leaders to figure out how organizations can learn and change, particularly as it relates to making transformation projects faster and faster. And I think, Drew, this was at a time in the early 90s after the 80s, you know, we saw Xerox sort of go out of business. We saw these rapid technological advances. We saw organizations either rapidly change and transform or what he said in the paper, basically the economic churn will just send these companies out of business. So at the time, you know, organizational transformation became became a very important topic and obviously an important topic to invite him to speak about at the World Economic Forum. Yeah, and, and um, 1992, the internet is just about to hit. It already exists, but hasn't really entered the public awareness yet. Particularly, the opportunities for business haven't yet even like become evident. Let alone how much it was going to transform the business landscape. And yeah, you've got to admire someone who goes to Davos, and essentially the first thing he tells people is, "You're all frightened puppies." <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. He sort of said, we're going to talk about learning and, and learning process and how at an organizational level it can be speeded up. And his, his introduction sort of also went on to say that he was struck by how little we really know about the dynamics of organizations and social systems and how little we know about the learning process. And so he goes on, Drew, to introduce three, at least three, he says, um, different types of learning. Should we sort of go through these, how, we, how he lays this out? Uh, so, yeah, let, let, let's briefly talk about these because the, this is just sort of setting the background for his main methods, me message. Uh, so, he says the first type of learning is the one that we all sort of think of as common learning, which is knowledge acquisition and insight learning. And he says this is the thing that people most focus explicitly on when they think about learning. So, that is, you know, the learner knows that they've got a problem, they're motivated to learn, so they set out to learn something. But he said, you know, that sort of knowledge and that sort of insight doesn't necessarily change your behavior or, or your approach to the particular problem you're trying to solve. You're having extra knowledge in your head doesn't actually change what you're doing. So that leads fairly naturally to the second type of learning, which is about learning habits and skills. So that's actually how you actually respond to things and what your behaviors are. He links this quite explicitly to uh, Skinner and behaviorism. And he's going to come back to this sort of behaviorist view of learning in a minute. He says this is fairly slow and because he says, you know, in order to learn skills, you've got to be willing to be temporarily incompetent, which he says is great if you're learning soccer, not so good if you're learning to run a nuclear power plant. Because he says, you know, when we're incompetent, we're very uncomfortable, we're feeling anxiety, we're desperate to try to get the correct behavior. There's a fair bit here, David. Do you want to go any more deeper into this sort of habit and skill learning? The only thing that I want to say is when, when he talked about this need to form habits and skills through practice, he, he said a couple of things that will be quite familiar to many of our listeners. He really called out the need for organizations to be okay with people making mistakes and making lots of mistakes. And I guess we know, or, or you know, the popular interpretation of human organizational performance, you know, one of those principles is error is normal. 
or mistakes um, are normal. And I guess he's sort of saying that organizations don't, ex- lots of leaders in organizations, lots of organizations don't accept that it's okay for people to just make mistakes. Even if they accept it's okay for them to make one mistake, they're not really that tolerant of a second um, similar mistake. He said, if you really want to form habits and skills, you need a practice effect, you need playing fields. And he introduced his term, Drew. I read the, the term, he said, you know, we need a, a psychologically safe environment. And that really struck me given that this was 1992. So I actually went and had a dig and go because, you know, and that, that this term, psychologically safe environment, was originally a term introduced apparently by Carl Rogers in relation to some of his work on how to facilitate creativity. Then in the 80s, it was associated with William Deming. He had 14 points for management and he termed it interpersonal safety. But more recently, I guess since 1999, it's been associated with Amy Edmondson's work. And just to sort of show the importance of going to the source, the number one result when I searched the uh, origin of the word psychological safety, um, just because you had to go last episode, Drew, at Management Consultants, uh, the number one result was a McKinsey article saying that Amy Edmondson came up with the term. So <laughs> just, just goes to show that, uh, that you know, we, we do emphasize in, in, in here in the podcast to, you know, do a little bit of a little bit more research, but yeah, it was, it was really it was really cool to read that to to, to read that sentence in a in a paper thirty years ago. You know, th- thanks for doing our homework on that one, David. And what what struck me is that it's not just that the term has been around that long. When Shine uses it, he means exactly what people mean today about by psychological safety. This is not you know the we talked in the last episode about jingle jangle fallacies, using the same word for two different concepts. This is the same word for the exact same concept has really been around that long. This precise idea about this uh, you know, freedom to make mistakes, safe to fail in order to facilitate conversation, in order to facilitate learning. So the third one, Drew, do you want, do you want to introduce that? Because he sort of goes to introduce that this is one that we don't talk about very much. Uh, yes. So, so the third one, and this is interesting because this also comes out of behavioral safety, but he sort of says, this is the next layer you've got to think about is it's not just learning skills and habits from um, you know, actions and feedback. It's you get emotionally conditioned by that environment as well. So, you know, you don't, if you're in a behaviorist environment, you don't just learn the skill you also learn to be really anxious. And so he, he explains, you know, lots of people have probably heard the idea of uh, you know, Pavlov's dog and ring the bell, but I don't think this sort of second deeper message is important. So, sorry, the, the second deeper message, the, the importance is communicated nearly enough. So just to explain the idea of Pavlov conditioning as, and I'll use Shine's explanation here because he's gonna continue the metaphor throughout the paper. He says, you put a dog in a green room, you ring a bell, and 10 seconds later, you give the dog a painful electric shock. The dog will very quickly learn to avoid green rooms. And not just that, but they'll learn that if they hear the bell, to try to run away. And even after you've turned the shocks off, the dog still won't go into the green room because he's learned to avoid it. Um, so that's the like classic idea of Pavlov's conditioning is you create a stimulus, you create a response, and then you get the person to learn that, you know, just in response to the stimulus, they give the response rather than needing the actual pain. But he says, you teach your dog to avoid the green room, he goes into the red room. But what if you give him shocks in the red room as well? (laughs) Then the dog doesn't know what to believe. He knows that the green room's unsafe, he knows that the red room's unsafe, he just jumps back and forth between the rooms. And even after you've turned off the shock, He's learnt to be anxious. He's learnt 
that nowhere is safe. And that's the sort of side effect of any sort of behavioral conditioning is it doesn't just teach you the behavior, it also teaches the anxiety associated with getting the behavior right and the fear of what's going to happen if you don't get the behavior right. And you can't just learn what not to do. You also need to know that the alternative is safe because if you don't trust that the alternative is safe, then both conditions are going to create anxiety. It's not just enough to learn that the green room gives you electric shock. You've got to know that the red room is a safe place to go to avoid the shock. And so this is the big concern with learning based on negative consequences is, and Sean says quite clearly, punishment is very effective in eliminating certain kinds of behavior, but it's also very effective in inducing anxiety when in the presence of the person who taught you that lesson or the environment that taught you that lesson. And that anxiety is not really what we want, particularly if all we've been taught is what not to do, that anxiety is going to carry over and we're not going to feel safe to try anything or to take risks. We're going to limit ourselves to very narrow ranges of behaviors that we know haven't given us the electric shock. And we're going to be afraid not just of the green room, but of anything that might be the green room. So David, I got sort of like fairly deep into the metaphor there. Is there anything sort of important that I missed there? I'm just wondering from a political correctness point of view, because we hear a lot about Pavlov's dog and ringing the bell and the stimulus response of salivation and food. So even with the no food there, you, you ring the bell and the dog still salivates. But um, maybe it's not politically correct to talk about these these experiments, uh, like it's probably not okay to talk about the Milgram experiments either. So I actually wasn't aware of the detail of, of, of these behavioral studies. But I guess this has, I think, of a practical example in safety, just a really simple practical example, and it might become more relevant as we go through. If you invite an operational manager to the boardroom to present an incident that they've had in their part of the business, and their experience of that is that the, the directors on that board give them an absolute grilling and berate them for you know having the incident, then they know that that's not a safe place. They're going to do anything to avoid ever having to be back in that room again. Now, your boardroom might not be painted green, but the principle is still the same. They're going to do anything they can to not report something or downplay something or avoid something because that's not a that's not a safe space to be. And at the same time, the organization hasn't told them anywhere that is actually a safe place or what to do. So just as you were talking then, Drew, just sort of a practical example I was, I was trying to think of. David, there's one more part of the metaphor we just need to introduce before we can go further into the paper. Um, and that's the black platform. So the black platform is where the dog gets fed. And metaphorically, you can happily live out your life on the black platform. It can be quite comfortable. It can be quite productive. You're doing fine. You're just afraid to hop off because as soon as you hop off the black platform, you risk being in the green room. So what can happen is even if someone comes along to the organization, new leader, new vision, new change, if the organization recognizes that new vision as potentially a green room, then the thought of stepping off the black platform into the unknown starts to in induce anxiety and a dread effect. So very final thing I should point out here is that I, I actually think it's okay to talk about those, these things so long as we recognize that Pavlov was evil. You don't do this to dogs. <laughs> you don't even do this to undergraduates. This is... <laughs> You, the, 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 these, are, these are metaphors, but I think they're important metaphors because we recognize today that we wouldn't do this even to a dog, but we do it not just to our organizations, we do it to ourselves. Um, and that's the message that Shine is trying to get across is not that you know managers do this to other people, 
but the managers themselves are trapped in this exact same situation. Um, you know, it's the managers who are also afraid, and it's the leaders, the CEOs who are afraid of stepping off that black platform. You know, just because you happen to be in senior leadership doesn't at all make you um, immune from your fundamental human fears and behaviours and anxieties when it comes to change. Yeah, absolutely right. And and reading between or ex- extending the metaphor to you know the practical uh, management of safety in organisations, I think I, 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 there was a very, there's very strong messages in here for middle management in organisations and also safety professionals. And if you read about what would it take to change, you know, y- your vision to something like, say, some people who might want to do a, a new view type of vision or, or some other type of vision in that if you're in an organization that's had negative consequences or um, a lack of psychological safety around things, no amount of, of visioning and, and, and that can actually make it not anxiety provoking for people to want to do something new. And I think that's, that's, that's the point of this part of the paper. So we've got three sort of, um, ways of learning. We can learn by building out our, our cognitive knowledge and skill base. We can learn by developing habits and, and skills. Or we've got this third learning that goes on inside organizations, which is this emotional conditioning and learned anxiety. So basically resist change because it, you know, we, we seek comfort in, in certainty of, of outcomes and, and work. So I guess the other, the last thing I want, wanted to say, Drew, maybe before we move on to the next section of the paper was um this is another example for me at not being surprised at what was already kind of theorized in the management literature so when this was being written was at the same time of this uh massive rise in the behavioral safety movement for safety so we've got uh, a presentation at the world economic forum that says really focus on you need to focus on psychological safety to learn and improve your organization you really need to not have have punishment for for mistakes or change, and this is at the time when when safety's run off and done something that was based on 1950s and 1960s, you know, behavioural psychology as opposed to, I guess, management and organisational science at the time. So we've said before, I think, Drew, that we think sometimes in safety we're about three or four decades behind some of the other fields, and this might be another example of that. Yeah, and and sorry, David, before we move on. There's one other thing that Shine says in the introduction that I think is directly relevant to why safety maybe hasn't been so receptive to some of the management stuff. It's one of those things where you contained within the message is itself the reason why the message is hard to be accepted. So Shine says that just having a new vision, just having a new idea, so your classic example, safety differently or adopting management science into safety, can't overcome the feelings because the human mind's able to defend itself against things that make us anxious. And he he says the three most common defenses are firstly, not to hear the message in the first place. So that's just the sort of la 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 can't hear you. Secondly, to deny that the message applies. So, you know, I love these new ideas, but our organization's not ready for them. Those don't really fit our organization. We still need to work on the basics or to rationalize that our leaders don't understand the situation. Oh, you know, these safety differently people, they're just academics. They've got no idea what it's like to work in a real organization. And he says, you can't talk people out of the learned anxiety because the learned anxiety is directly pushing them to reject the message. Uh, Yeah, David, I just want to acknowledge that this is a really unfair message. I I think it's true, but telling someone else that the reason why they're not listening to you is because they're anxious is is also just not going to work. And it's sort of fair because there's nothing, no evidence they can offer that can refute this sort of accusation. 
Um, so I think it's an important insight, but it's the sort of insight that's actually not that useful when it's directly talking to other people. You, know, you can't tell someone that you're ignoring me because you're anxious, you're not listening, you're rejecting the message out of anxiety. They're going to deny it and it's entirely fair for them to deny it. Yeah, it's like telling someone that they've got an unconscious bias. It's just, yeah, there's no way to defend against that accusation. Yeah, I was going to say, it just might be slightly nicer than telling them that they're just resistant to change. But also, I think the, I think the sympathetic to do with this understanding is not to tell people that they're anxious, but to have, have sympathy and empathy for the anxiety that they're experiencing and to recognise that they're not resisting the message because they're bad people, they don't like the message. They're resisting the message because they have legitimate anxiety based on their previous experiences. And if we want to help them, then we can't just try to push a message onto them. We need to be empathetic to that anxiety and to have approaches which are sensitive to the anxiety. And so managing these anxieties of change is the next section of the paper. And I guess even without, you know, Shine doesn't suggest, didn't suggest that we should directly confront people in, in that way. Jury sort of said the answer to managing these anxieties is paradoxical. And so we must create a new anxiety. So all the way through the paper up until now, he's called the whenever he's mentioned anxiety, anxiety one. And now he said we must make a new anxiety. Let's call it anxiety two. And anxiety two must be greater than anxiety one. So the anxiety of the change must be superseded by making people anxious not to change. Yet it must not be so great to cause defensiveness and paralysis. So he's sort of saying, look, if you know that people are going to be anxious about change, then you've got to you know, entering the green room, then you've got to make them a little bit more anxious about staying on the black platform, but not so anxious that they, you know, jump off the building type of thing. So this is a kind of interesting, interesting point. And and Shine does talk about this in the in the first chapter or so of Humble Inquiry book about the and he calls it the anxieties of learning uh in Humble Inquiry. And you need to introduce a a healthy level of anxiety and discomfort about people not learning to actually really promote the learning process. Any thoughts, Drew? One, one of the things I think is interesting is that you would normally expect there to be lots of motives for people to step off the black platform. You, people are very naturally curious. People are naturally very innovative. And though curiosity and innovation are values which are praised in our society, but within organisations, and in particularly large organisations, they're not actually rewarded. <laughs> we, talk, we talk about valuing innovation, we talk about valuing curiosity, but we basically teach people within organisations that uh, curiosity and innovation are dangerous because we judge people not by the display of curiosity, but we judge them by the result. And if the result is making trouble or the result is making a mistake, then we punish people for the trouble or the mistake. We don't reward them for showing the curiosity or showing the innovation. Yeah. And so Shine links this work back to the work of Kurt Lewin. So um, I think it was episode 98 where we talked about the Harwood studies. Uh, we introduced Kurt Lewin's work and his original fear theory of, um, you know, organizations change by going through a process of unfreezing, you know, changing and then refreezing. So, you know, Shine acknowledges that, you know, well, or, you know, agrees, aligns that we must first destabilize the organization. So Lewin's unfreezing phase um, so to speed things up, the first thing we need to do is speed up this process of unfreezing. And he said, you know, which is people letting go of their their current situation and and I guess taking on a desire to move to change, to learn and and to change. So he sort of says this happens through three processes, Drew. Do you want to talk to those? Okay. So first one is disconfirmation. 
So disconfirmation is basically just leading people to perceive that the current status quo is not working. Make them feel that the black platform is not actually a good place to be. And he says one of the ways to do this is to make disconfirming data highly visible to all members of the organization and such data must be convincing. So one of the strategies that I think is very common in safety is this discussion of a plateau. Uh, you have a plateau in incidents or a plateau in fatality rates. That's an example of disconfirmation. That's people trying to put data in front of other people to say, look, the status quo is not acceptable. People are uncomfortable with the idea that we're not getting better for safety. People need to believe we're constantly reducing the number of fatalities. So show people that there's a plateau and they're no longer comfortable with the status quo. That's disconfirmation. A second one is a creation of guilt or anxiety. I immediately flinch with that. That sounds a little bit evil. Yeah, that word's a little bit evil. The, 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 the explanation isn't quite as evil. He goes on to say that even if, even if you give people the disconfirming data and even if they believe that it's true, like maybe the plateau in safety performance or something, um, they may not be motivated by it because they don't connect that information to something that they care about. So the data related to parts of the black platform, it might not be the parts that they're living in. It might be another part of the business and their business might, their part of the business might be okay. So, you know, we, we need to, I guess, create an environment where, where I don't like the word guilt either, Drew, but, but people actually feel that, no, no, this does relate to me. And, and, and what we're, where we're at at the moment is not where we need to be. And we, we, you've got my attention now. He actually refers to, but creating anxiety too is colloquially referred to as you know getting someone's attention. You've got my attention now. Let's 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 do this. Two two particular ways of thinking about that. One of them is something one of my students actually said to me this week. Uh, she said, "In this course, I'm out of my comfort zone, which means I'm in my learning zone." So it's something that we're sort of familiar with in education. Is we try to get people to recognize that their existing knowledge is not quite enough. That creates a space for people to seek out and learn new things. So you know, discomfort is probably better than anxiety. Uh, but the other thing he points to, which I find interesting, is if people feel a bit personally threatened or ashamed or guilty because they're not living up to their own ideals and aspirations, so that's a sort of anxiety related to personal identity. I know, for example, you want to get me to read a book. I'll often procrastinate when I'm reading nonfiction, but like make me feel a little bit personally threatened that there's something other people are talking about that I haven't read or a little bit, you know, ashamed and guilty that I'm cribbing rather than having studied something in depth. That challenges my own ideal of myself, which is someone who you know, goes to the original sources and reads them. So make me feel guilty or a little bit ashamed and I'll go and read something. So yeah, getting people into that space where they don't feel good about themselves sitting in the status quo. They feel that to live up to their own identity, their own values, their own aspirations, they need to be part of that change. And through the third, I guess, process for this unfreezing of an organization is this creation of psychological safety. So we still need to have an environment like we've spoken about that it's safe to experiment, to explore, to be curious and to and to make mistakes. So that sort of speeds up this this process of, of unfreezing. So do you want to say any more about psychological safety that we haven't said yet, Drew? So, so there's a few particular things he calls out because I think people overgeneralize psychological safety and there are some specific things that matter. Um, so the first one he said, you, the learner has to feel that new habits are possible. 
So they have to feel that, you know, it, it's actually that new state is somewhere where they can get and that they're capable of. Um, and in an organization, there need to be opportunities for training and practice, coaching and reward for efforts in the right direction. I think the efforts there is important. We need to be noticing when people are trying, not noticing the outcomes. Norms that legitimize the making of errors and norms that reward innovative thinking and experimentation. Um, And David, I'd suggest that the norms there is the important bit. You can't just be like a program where you put a suggestion in a box and we'll pick one out and you give an innovation prize. That's not a norm, that's a special event. It's gotta be just normal that people make errors, normal that you try things out, they don't work, you try again. And you've already mentioned it, David, but I really love the idea that it's not about just tolerating mistakes, it's about tolerating the second mistake as well. That when it's normal to make mistakes, you gotta let people fail multiple times and not get really annoyed the moment they've like failed to. Because otherwise the lesson they learn from the first mistake is that it was dangerous to try. And so they don't try at all. What we want is them to recognize the mistake, but to try again and risk another mistake. And it's that second mistake we've got to tolerate as well. Yeah, Drew, we haven't talked about it yet. And throughout this paper, Edgar Schein makes some really pointed descriptions of organizational life, like where he talks about what it's like to manage complex operations and the expectations of leaders. You know, they're not just supposed to admit that they don't understand a problem. They're not supposed to admit that they're not in complete control of a situation. They're not supposed to, you know, make mistakes and have workers see them making mistakes. Um, And so, you mentioned earlier, Drew, one of the things about Edgar Schein's work is when we do these papers, this is a 20-page paper and we're trying to summarize it, but it's one of those things where we could literally just jump on this podcast and read it out. It's all really useful, useful stuff. And um, yeah, this paper's worth reading just for the way that uh, Schein describes the the current norms and expectations of organizations and how different they are from the norms and expectations that uh, you just mentioned there, Drew. David, if it suits you, let's move on to his sort of particular solution that he lays out in the rest of the paper. And just as preface, I'll say, I never knew that this was actually what was meant by these ideas about change teams. I always just saw it as a very sort of management faddish type thing. And the spin he puts on these teams is just so different from the way I think they're often framed in management. I guess I'm using that as an excuse for my own previous misunderstanding. (laughs) But yeah, so even though as we go through this, you're going to recognize the structure of what he's proposing, but the spirit I think is what's most important. And this is sandwiched, Drew. This this work is off the back of um, Cooper Ida's work on appreciative inquiry. So a lot of these change teams are very similar to the way that um, Cooper Ida framed that work in the 80s. And also when people go through here, you might think that three years after this speech, Cotter released in 1995 is eight-step change management process. So there's a lot going on around the time in relation to organizational change, I think, Drew, and it's hard to know where where some of these ideas, who was the first to to raise some of these ideas? So, so the fundamental idea is to create this change team. But the reason for the team is not really to drive the change. It's because you can't ask other people to learn something if you yourself aren't embodying and displaying and being that sort of learning person yourself. And so you need to be in an environment as a leader where you are safe. And he basically says that needs a support group. (laughs) So this change team is basically an anxiety support group for senior leaders in the organization 
where everyone is anxious, everyone admits that they're anxious, everyone shares their anxieties, owns up with them, and helps each other deal with their anxieties. So it's not about like leading and driving change, it's mutual support to basically stand up and say, hi, I'm a leader, my name, sorry, what is it? Hi, my name's Mike, I'm a leader, I'm an anxious person. It's been two days since my last panic attack at the thought of change. Andrew, it's interesting that he uses the specific language of steering committee. And I don't know how many steering committees I've been in my career or how many uh, steering committees you've been in in your career, but they do not operate like uh, Shine describes the way that they should operate. I think we should just relabel them anxiety support groups, <laughs> management anxiety support groups. This is really about, he says here about, you know, this is the, this is the small group that needs to um, role model, establish and, and develop these norms that are favorable to innovation and learning. And basically the whole rest of the organizational change will then radiate out from this group. But yeah, just to be explicit, he's saying you know, we're, we're trying to manage the anxiety that the organization itself has had bad experiences before in trying to change. The people involved have learned the lessons from those previous bad experiences of the organization themselves. So what we're doing is we are sharing and managing jointly the anxiety in a group that knows that its mission is ultimately the welfare of the organization. So in that group, people own up and deal with their own anxieties. And that's the first and main step in leading then towards planning of change. Yeah, and then Drew goes on to talk about these, well, in the first part of steering committees, but then he goes on to label them as task forces. But the steering committee basically establishes several task forces that in turn, they have these rapid intensive learning experiences to plan effectively for the whole organization. So, yeah, you know, they're meant to also then have this experience of learning what it is to, to be in the change state and then start to uh, design the programs for the rest of the organization to do this. So, David, why don't you take us right, like right through the seven steps that he lays out? Yeah, and then the final step then is the I guess throughout the process that all of the that the members of the steering committee communicate extensively and intensively to the whole organisation to keep everyone appraised appraised of what's happening and to continue this unfreezing process um, with particular attention to creating psychological safety as the pressures for change mount. So, this is I think through you know, a little bit of a convoluted second step process. Uh, but a process that if people read this this paper, it's open access, we'll put it in the in the link on LinkedIn and in the show notes. But uh, really, people will say, oh, gee, that's I can see how that might be the way that this needs to happen, but that's not the way that we manage change in my organization. Yeah, I, I think a lot of change processes recognize like resistance to change, reluctance to change, change anxiety, but they always seem to treat it as something that is external from the leading of the change as if you know the leaders are fully motivated they're fully bought into the change and then the organization you just need to like reduce the resistance from other people and i think the sort of like key message that he's put saying here is that you know leaders don't sit above the change anxiety L leaders are part of it and unless they own up to it then basically they're going to be unconsciously exhibiting that anxiety and causing the anxiety for other people, the way they react to early missteps, the way they react to mistakes, the way they react to suggestions that are put up in as part of the change or in contradiction of the change, that's going to just perpetuate the anxiety down through the organization. And so facing it at the top level is what supports the change process. But David, I guess there's a sort of like hidden assumption here, which I only just noticed because it is so embedded in the paper. Shine sees change and learning to be basically the same thing. 
change isn't something that you know what you're going to do. Change is all about a learning process for the leaders as well as for the organization. So you don't go into a change knowing what the change is. You go into a change with a need and desire to learn yourself. And you come out of the change process knowing the direction you're going. Absolutely right, Drew. I think I think it's this the words are almost used interchangeably in 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 this paper. And I also somewhat agree with with change being a learning strategy. If we see change as something being different, then it's one of those things that, you know, the, the ideas that cause the problem aren't the same ideas to solve the problem. So, you know, to think that you've got all of these this this knowledge and skill and capability to do what the organization wants you to do, but instead the whole organization's working in its current state. I'm not sure that's the case. I think change has to be about learning. So, Drew, I, there's a couple of practical takeaways. Do you want to sort of, you, you just mentioned that overarching thing. I'll put a couple of points there. Can we maybe run through those? Yeah, I, I, sorry, I've got it in our notes. I've got this little introduction to the takeaways, but I think I've already sort of made those points. So let's dive right into the number of suggestions you've got, David. Yeah. So I just, I sort of said, look, you know, for organizations to change, you need to overcome the negative past effects of, of, of other change processes um, that may not have worked, um, but particularly the effects of sort of carrots and sticks and especially the sticks. So this, um, you know, how how your organization deals with with mistake and and that is 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 going to say a lot for whether people are prepared to try new things and and change uh, with you or not. Um, so you absolutely need to deal with that. Um, and to make people feel safe in in this learning, they need to have a motive. They need to have a sense of direction and an opportunity to try new things without fear. So this is um, you need to be motivated. Need to know where we're headed. Um, need to sort of engage with that and. Uh, and really have this environment of psychological safety. And if you want to speed up the learning process, the last point here is in your organization, I guess start with an analysis of what anxieties, defenses, and cultural assumptions might stand in your way. So, you know, if you read through this paper, and I'm not aware of any sort of work or have never been involved in effort to, to do this, but it'd be kind of like some kind of readiness for change assessment, like, you know, what 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 is the current levels of, of anxiety? What is the current levels of fear? And you know what are our current levels of psychological safety in the organisation? All the things that we've spoken about in this podcast. You know, one of the other practical takeaways that Shine suggests is that um, you know know what know what stands in your way. You know, if you want to go fast. Yeah, it's it's not directly in this paper, David, but one of the recurring themes throughout Shine's work is that the the real trouble with culture as a concept is you don't see your own culture. So it's really very hard for an organization to know what assumptions they're making, to know what are the uh, schemas and patterns that are driving the organization because the people inside the organization are living within them. And so in other work, that's basically what Shine has held up as the ideal of organizational development and uh, coaching and consulting. Uh, is the ability to for an organization to work effectively with consultants, not for consultants to create the change or to lead the change or to manage the change, uh, but for consultants to help the organization recognize its own culture, recognize its own assumptions and values and patterns of behavior so that those can be taken into account. So the consultant can then hand back to the organization to lead the change with that self-awareness necessary to do it. Yeah, I think Drew, you're right. Like Giddens' work on structuration in social psychology, that um, you know, the people in a system are at the same time creating and being influenced by the system in 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 real time. So it's very hard to to see that to see your contribution to creating it, but also just to actually be aware of how exactly it might be influencing you. And I guess even though Shine's book he called uh, organizational culture and leadership, 
Um, I think that might have just been to sell more copies of the book, Drew, because I still, I'd sort of, the content of that book is very much a social and organizational psychology book and very true to, you know, the parent discipline. He doesn't really talk about culture and leadership in those sort of, I don't know, maybe generic industry ways. So, David, the question for this week was how can organizations learn faster? Well, Drew, don't make people afraid to enter the green room. Or make them more afraid to stand on the black platform. <laughs> Perfect. So bail to, uh, you know, to the life and work of uh, Edgar Schein. And that's it for this week. Uh, we hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 